0: Welcome to Give a Heck. I am your host White Heck and for much of my life, lived my life in quiet desperation, wondering how I was going to pay the bills, take vacations, save for retirement, and one day wondering if I would get off the hamster wheel of life and have purpose. A life that most of society lives, which takes us to work, then home, then repeat, and pays us hopefully enough just to survive. The harsh truth that most live with more months than money and have no idea how to live life on purpose, not by accident. This ensures the mass majority are living not just financially broke, however emotionally and mentally as well due to financial pressures. In each episode, I will introduce you to thoughts, ideas, and guests that can help you to learn how you too can live life on purpose, not by accident. Good day and welcome to Give A Heck. On today's show, I welcome Jan Ferguson. Jan is a consultant, certified master NLP practitioner and NLP trainer who served in law enforcement for 32 years. Jan has dedicated his life to empowering individuals to achieve even more in life and business. He has earned numerous awards and certifications including the President's Call to Service Award, several Presidential Volunteer Service Award Gold Level, multiple insurance designations, and numerous other law enforcement awards. Jan is a loving father and husband who has been married for over 34 years. Jan's greatest passion is to empower individuals to achieve next-level success. I'd like to welcome you to the show, Jan. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on and share with us some of your life journey.
1: Thank you, Dwight. Um, Pleasure being here. Thank
0: you for inviting me. Yes, you're welcome. Uh, uh, just for the listeners, we met each other in another group we both belong to. Mm-hmm. And I was just fascinated with some of the things that you shared and why I really wanted you to come on the show. And I believe you wanted to do is we have a lot of uh, you know commonalities and similarities that I think will both serve each other as well as the listeners. So, Jan, one of the things in my life that's really intrigued me is... The wording, people don't really, you know, you talk about the origin story, people, you know, well, what do you mean? Well, most people in not just podcast world well, in life in general, when they meet somebody, they'll say, what's your background? What's your, tell me your story. Yeah. And what they're really talking about is what's happened in your life in, let's say, since you graduated high school or college or university. I don't think that's enough. And Marvel and uh, the Star Wars universe proved that to me when they start movie series is in the middle And then once they're successful, they think that the beginning is now it's okay to tell you the beginning. (laughs) All right. I want to know the beginning now. I want to know your origin story and what the key things from your childhood, right back to childhood, to adulthood that led you to where you're at currently. And I'd really, it doesn't matter how long it is. I want you just to share whatever it is right from childhood to adulthood. And I'll be taking some great notes, I imagine. (laughs) So if you could please tell me your origin story. Sure,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I was um, born and raised in, um, in Yonkers, New York, which is uh, just north of the Bronx, and um, to a, um, a loving family, uh, you know, the, the American dream type of thing. And um, my dad was, uh, at the time, a um, TV repair person. TV was just big, starting in the 50s. And my mom, of course, at the time was stay home mom. And, um, you know, religious family, loving family, and, um, I'm the oldest of three. I've got two younger sisters. Uh, one was born two years after me and the other two years after her. So, um, so we were always a close family. Of course, you know, we, uh, my sisters and I used to bicker back and forth all the time, just like kids will do. And, you know, he touched me, she touched me type of thing. She didn't do her chores, you know, all this kind of stuff. So we had an absolutely normal um, uh, childhood. Um, a- as we grew up, um, I-, I did notice, and, you know, this might be a, maybe a somewhat normal thing, but uh, uh, my father always kind of navigated towards, uh, you know, the girls. Uh, they could uh, always do nothing wrong. And, you know, I was the one who was always either in trouble, maybe deservedly so sometimes, but maybe not. And, uh, I remember it was, I was like 14 years old and, uh, again, never, my dad was not one who liked sports. We didn't go to baseball games, football games or anything like that. I really didn't do any of that until I got into the dorms in college. And, uh, but, uh, it was very, very much where I, at that point in time, at about 14 years of age. Um, I kind of wanted more of the, the fatherly, um, experience, so to speak. And, um, I was a boy scout, uh, started off as a cub scout and worked my way up. Uh, my dad did become, I believe an assistant scout master and, uh, he used to go on a few, uh, camping trips with us. I was lucky to be in a very, very active troop. And we used to go now, again, we we're in the Northeast. We used to go camping every once a month, uh, no matter what the, uh, it was set up beforehand. Uh, we knew where we were going, uh, didn't make any difference. It could have snowed two feet the day before we went. So, um, you know, in life experiences that, that was a good thing because it, it, it allowed you to really take care of yourself. Uh, I know that I was able to do that. Um, I you could put me anywhere right now, and I you know with minimal supplies, and I'm sure I could you know survive at least to get to someplace, and, and so that was that was really good training as far as that's concerned, and it did give me a little bit more um, uh, interaction with my father, even though uh, you know he was responsible uh, maybe with another you know adult or whatever for the rest of the kids, and so I wasn't spending quality time with him, but then I remember I think well, I believe it was age 14. He wanted my help. Uh, we had a um, like, kind of like a brownstone from uh, that you'd hear about in New York all the time. It was a multifamily type of thing. We owned the house, uh, our family did. And, uh, but there were, uh, I believe uh, four families, myself, our family rather, uh, my great uncle and my aunt, uh, and then two renters uh, in the upper part but it was a flat roofed type of building. And so on occasion he would go up and tar the roof. And I remember him asking me to help him. And I thought that was the best thing since sliced bread. I was doing something with my dad that my sisters weren't involved. And uh, I even got out of chores uh, for that whole weekend because of what we were doing. And so, you know, that to me was like the best thing since sliced bread. And, um, Of course, then after that, it it really didn't last. And you know, as much as I hate to say it, I didn't have maybe the father-son relationship that a lot of lot of guys do, especially when it comes to sports and things like that. And so I kind of felt like I I was left out a little bit with regard to that. Um, so it left me to my own, you know, devices as far as you know, meeting and, and and you know, associating with. Um, my friends in the neighborhood, and and this type of thing. Uh, I'm not going to say it damaged me in any way or anything. It's just maybe something that I really, really wanted a little more of. so I made sure that I was at least um, available when I had, you know, children. And so then after that, um, I was, you know, I graduated uh, parochial school in the eighth grade, uh, went to Uh, high school. Nowadays, there's a lot of junior high, but uh, I went through eighth grade, then high school. And in high school, I got involved in some intramural sports, went to parochial high school as well in another city and um, got involved um, with the drama club, drama and um, um, the chorus type of uh, uh, club. And um, I was involved and actually a lot of clubs, became president of some of them. And uh, that really gave me the interaction, especially it was an all-male school with a lot of um, uh, adult mentors. Uh, in fact, there's, uh, there's a priest who just passed away in the last two years who I had kept contact with. And he was probably one of the best role models and mentors that I've ever had. And, um, but, um, it was again, an uneventful time. I wasn't the best student, but I wasn't the worst either. And, uh, I was more interested in the after school events, uh, which obviously involved girls because you can't have uh, a drama club without and have a play without girls for the girl parts. And so we had sister schools that came in and, um, uh, so that's probably when my grades went down a little bit more to be expected, but other, other than that, uh, I got my varsity letter in dramatics. Uh, I had fun, um, you know, doing all that again, I wasn't much into sports. Uh, can probably say I'm really not now. I never really played baseball. I remember as a kid, in fact, I tried out for a little league team and I was crushed when I didn't get picked. Uh, of course I had no real skills or anything like maybe some of the other kids did, but I remember that. Uh, but I was an excellent swimmer. Uh, I tried to do that. I tried to get on the swimming team, but I was more of a, I guess maybe you could call it a survivalist type of swimmer. Uh, I could, um, stay afloat, you know, for a long, long time. I uh, wasn't the fastest, uh, um, did a lot of breaststroke and things like that, but that's not what competitive swimming is all about. So even in high school, when I tried out for a, um, uh, the swimming team, I didn't make that either. So I just knew that sports wasn't for me as far as any type of extracurricular activity. That's when I went into the drama club. Um, I enjoyed doing all that. It was all learning experience as far as I was concerned, because I realized what my limitations were, and what I was actually good at. And, uh, so as much as it maybe stung a little bit, I'm not going to say I was hurt, but maybe that it stung a little bit. Uh, I learned a lot from those experiences. And like I said, I really enjoyed being around uh, the girls and everything, and especially junior and senior year, which you just didn't get in sports. So, uh, so I wasn't one of the jocks, but, uh, you know, we had our own. I wasn't a nerd either. We had our own kind of uh, clique that was the, the others, for lack of a better word. Uh, a lot of those kids, the unknown kids that just carried on all the time and were good kids and, and um, just went forward. Uh, I was liked by pretty much all the teachers, uh, lay and religious, and uh, uh, just went on that way. Um, graduated somewhere in the middle of my class, nothing special, and I went, um, I went to a parochial high school, I mean, a college initially. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, let me rephrase that. I, I went initially to a college in New York and um, did two years there. Uh, I was a, um, initially a so, uh, psychology and what they called at the time, EDP electronic data processing uh, major and um, didn't do much in the electronic data processing and the psychology at the time with the instructors they had there. Um, boy, I just wasn't getting it. Uh, they did a lot of accounting in uh, for the EDP type of part, and I wasn't an accountant. Why they were teaching us accounting, I really have no idea. I guess, guess they expected us to be accountants and use data processing. I don't know. But uh, um, debits and credits, as much as I know about them now, uh, back then it was, it was Greek to me. And so I just um, continued on. Um, I went through my sophomore year there and I made a mistake that was such a small mistake uh, that it changed my life. And it was a good thing. Um, I actually had written a paper for, um, I think it was a psychology class. I can't recall now. And I added in there about a half a page of a quote that I got from, um, a periodical or something, uh, that I was using as reference. I forgot to mark that in the bibliography that I had used it from something else. Uh, well, my teacher instructor, prof- professor, uh, for whatever reason knew about that book and, uh, said that I was plagiarizing. And so, yeah, we had the big teachers meeting and everything. And they said, well, we're going to have to suspend you. And I said, it was a simple mistake. What the heck? And, uh, so I, um, spent uh, the next six months not going to school and, um, I worked for a large corporation at the time instead in the mailroom and uh, got a real good experience on, you know, working outside of, you know, a school setting. Um, I applied then to a parochial college thinking, oh, I'll have to do my sophomore year all over again, but I had enough credits um, and I went in as a junior and uh, that was in Minnesota. I went to a different state. Um Really had no, for lack of a better word, any uh, anxiety. I didn't have any homesickness. Uh, I was out on my own, and I kind of felt good about it. And uh, after my first, uh, my first year there, I decided to stay out there. So I stayed out in Minnesota, finished uh, school, and um, switched my major from psychology to sociology, And I think that was the start, really, of where I really wanted to help people. Um, Not so much, I didn't want to be a a social worker, and I didn't really want to be a psychologist, uh, but I wanted to help people. And uh, I didn't really know how at the time. Um, But I always knew, in the back of my head, I had an uncle who was a law enforcement officer. And I just knew that that's probably something I wanted to do. And, but at the time, because of shows like Adam 12 and, and all the, uh, the cop shows at the time, and with the seventies being uh, the, the bad time as far as our economy was concerned, uh, at that time, everybody that had corporate jobs that were being laid off, all were trying to become cops. They didn't want to for the career They wanted to just for the salary. And I'm here to tell you that in law enforcement, you just can't do that. You have to, it has to be something deep inside that you really want to do. You can't do it for the salary because it's just not the same. You can't help people in my estimation and do it professionally unless you really have a, a deep, deep want to help people. And, um, So I did whatever I could to try to test Um, there. I tested uh, for St. Paul police. I was in the Twin Cities at the time, tested for the St. Paul police department, didn't get accepted. Um, I went into, um, at that time I then ended up before um, I went into any other of my uh, jobs, um, I actually started off in private security, figuring, okay, that'll give me a little bit of information towards, uh, law enforcement. And, um, actually I was still going to school at the time because, uh, as a junior and senior, I was able to arrange my schedule where I had all my classes, basically Monday, Tuesday, and half the day, Wednesday. And then, so Wednesday night, starting at midnight, we were 12 hour shifts, then Thursday and Friday and Saturday. Uh, I was, um, I was a, um, a security guard for all practical purposes, but I was a mobile one. And so we went to accounts in different parts of the cities and uh, metro area and uh, made inspections, wrote them down and and this type of thing. But it was something that I wanted to do. I was an armed officer and uh, had a little bit of prestige, had a little bit of knowledge, what it was like to be out there kind of. And um, that just made it even more so that I really, 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 wanted to do this. Uh, but as I tested for different places, um, it just wasn't happening in Minnesota for whatever reason. Uh, I tested uh, for Minnesota State Patrol. The place that I tested in the Twin Cities, now there were nine locations that were testing that one Saturday. And the place I was testing at had 2,000 applicants. It was in an audit- wow. a large, large auditorium. And they must have had uh, 500 tables set up and, um, you know, with people kind of sitting opposite each other, um, a little apart, so you couldn't cheat during the test. <clears throat> uh, altogether, I, it was my understanding that in all the nine locations, there were close to 10,000 people that were testing that day. And there were 25 positions open, of which six were for white males. Wow. So I, I tested really high, um, but I had no, um, how can I put it? None of the special things that they were doing in the seventies uh, because of affirmative action. If you, uh, in fact, there was a police officer that was a St. Paul police officer that wanted to go into um, the state troopers. And he told me we, we were talking between, before the test during uh, several breaks. And he said, uh, the way it works, you get extra points if you're a veteran, extra points if you're a police officer already, extra points if you're a minority, this type of thing. And he basically told me, and I remember this to this day, that to get onto the state patrol, uh, you'd have to be a black woman with a Spanish surname, having a PhD who was already a police officer.
0: Wow. You didn't check enough boxes.
1: Yeah, pretty much. And I didn't have the credentials for it. So, um, you know, and, and, and that was fine. Again, it was one of those little things that stung, but it just made me even more resilient to continue on with my dream. So I um, um, just kept on testing different places. I tested North Dakota Highway Patrol. I tested Texas Department of Public Safety. Um, I was getting so close on all of them. Texas Department of Public Safety, I tested I was number 121 on the list. They took 120 people, but they didn't have a waiting list. 60 people flunked. I had a friend that went down with me. He made it because he was a Texas, initially a Texas resident. His family lived in Texas. He was former Marine, which I was not in the military. And so he had those extra credentials as well. Um, But I was number 121 on the list. They didn't have a... Um, a waiting list and so even though 60 people dropped out of the academy because most police academies just like basic training they can be tough 60 people dropped out they tested again for people I just couldn't afford to go down and test again Um, and I went through all the testing because I was coming from out of state went to psychological the physical everything all in one weekend they made special arrangements for myself and uh, this other guy and we lived with uh, uh, for that weekend, um, and I think a Monday uh, with with relatives of his, and so uh, again it just made my resolution even stronger. And eventually, I got on with a uh, small department of thirty five people in Wyoming. I tested out there, and I happened to see the ad. Uh, I was in insurance at the time, and I was looking to become an underwriter because. Uh, having my own agency, with all the hours I was putting in, I was pretty much making less than minimum wage. My secretary was making more than I was <laughs> per hour. And so um, with that, I said, you know, I, I, I need to get onto a salary type of situation. And I, um, I happened to see an ad. Whenever I saw an ad for law enforcement where I didn't have to already be certified, um, if I could, I would travel to wherever it was And, uh, so I was lucky to get on with a small department in Wyoming and, uh, they had some 20 people testing. I tested number one and within two weeks after testing, I was offered the position, moved out there. And as they say, the rest is history.
0: Wow. Um, And this is amazing because, uh, I I listened to your story. I got so many notes. (laughs) I can't even (laughs) go through them all. But, you know, I was one of three kids. I was the youngest. My dad was very much into the girls. My daughter, my sister's part of me. Um, not a lot of a huge age difference. But again, growing up in the 70s, I was, you know, I was sickly. I had health issues. So I wasn't really, I, I got into sports, had to quit them because my asthma got so bad. But my dad was always Maybe it was just I look back at it. He was harder on me than my girl, my his girls, my sisters, but it helped shape me and who I've become mm-hmm. today. So it's not this isn't about my origin story, but um, I literally yeah, I have a lot of things that I connect with you. So I would you know, my dad was both the girls too. wasn't He was mm-hmm. a huge sports person, opposite of your dad. Um, mm-hmm. Still as today, my dad played everything. When I was younger, I remember him hauling me to the local drill hall for the military because he had friends in the military, he never served in the military, but go to the local drill hall and they'd have basketball and I'd sit there and watch mm-hmm. play basketball. He played baseball. He played hockey. He played everything that you could think of. That's yeah, very successful business owner. So a lot to look, you know, you look back then in awe of your parent, but it was also a lot uh, to try to live up to as a young person. Mm-hmm. You know, right. we, oh, your dad does all these sports. Why can't you? <laughs> you know what <laughs> I mean? All the stigma, the labeling that people put on to us. So, you know, and I was in, I was in uh, uh, Cubs as well, Cubs go, right. So Mm -hmm. I did that as well growing up and did the camping. And even though my asthma was bad, I just loved it. Um, Absolutely. Wasn't really close with my dad. Love my dad. You know, if he listens to this, he knows I love him. We've never even, he's in, he's 80 now this year. We don't necessarily have we're not close, but we've gotten to a point where we communicate about things, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Total different personalities and and the way we drive things. Um, But he taught me a lot working for him growing up as uh, how to treat people in relationships, Mm -hmm. how to treat people, you know, when you're you're building your business, how you should be compassionate. He had very much the village mentality that you and I talked to before we started recording. He was very Mm -hmm. much about taking care of, his farmers, because he owned an implement de- farmer to implement dealership, taking care of his staff, volunteering in the local community, very much into all the sports. And it, the only th- the message there for you and for the listeners that well a lot of listeners know already is my dad put everything above me. Right, right. He didn't realize yeah. it, but that's what it was. That generation it was about taking care of, you know, woman stays at home, takes care mm-hmm. of the kids, takes care of the family, mm-hmm. you know, man goes out and does what he wants. Yeah. Right? And but that was the situation dad, bad, I had. That's, that's what it was though.
1: Yeah. That was situation I had, except least in, in your situation, and I'm not saying this is a good or a bad thing. It's just something I had to live with is the fact that uh, other than the fact that as far as, you know, I knew as a kid, my dad was a good person. He was always there for us. Uh, you know, um, um, his only vice, as far as I know, was smoking, which he did give up. And, My dad, too. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, as, as we got older and uh, other other than that, he was there for us, which, you know, in that day and time, you didn't see as many divorces as you do nowadays or whatever. You know, he stayed with my mom until my mom passed away. Uh, they were together many, many years. And um, and uh, she passed away in 93 and my dad passed away in 2007. And so that was the one good thing, I guess, that he did pass on to me is the fact that family is everything. And um, I just, for lack of something better, I didn't have anything to look up to as far as that's concerned, other than the okay. fact that. He was a good family man, Um, you know, which, which definitely helped because that's what I've tried to do in my life.
0: Yeah. Uh, And and it's easy to pick apart our parents, our mm -hmm. upbringing, and obviously some of the listeners, you know, there's nothing you can find good because I know my own clientele base of the last 19 years in finance and all the coaching I've done, not everybody can pick out some nuggets of goodness. Yeah, their upbringing. So at least you have something I do, too. I look up to my dad, certain things. He wasn't present. Um, I wish he would have been more present, but it is what it is. So it took me until I got into my 20s. And then into my 30s, the more I self developed my six inches, the more I realized, and appreciated the nuggets of goodness from my father and what he taught me, and then realized and disconnected from my negative mindset, all the things that I wish he would have done, or he should have done that i thought right it okay. just wasn't a reality so you can't we we constantly live in the past as an adult which you know the mm-hmm. past is the past you could, so i wanted to learn from the past not live absolutely. in the past right so absolutely you know and you talked about the fact of you know you, you did mention that specifically about you know high school and intramural sports you got into drama because you weren't really into the sports mm-hmm. um Me, I got into computers, right? Mm -hmm. The first PC lab that was in our province, for listeners that are new, that's the same as a state if you're in the U.S. And uh, the first lab that they built for PCs back in in like 82 uh, was in our high school. So I got Mm -hmm. involved with it computer teacher who was learning along with us Mm -hmm. and we got to play around because he wanted to learn as much as us and we become good friends and we started going to competitions around the province programming and so for you it was drama for me it was computers um I probably because I was very introverted I still am I've had to force myself to be an extrovert and work at it um but yeah so then you talked about pre-scissor role model I have a couple of those I was an Mm -hmm. altar server, was in choir. So I can relate to a lot of what you talked about. That's why I was smiling throughout listening to you. It was, I knew that we had lots of connections even before I did, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. Sometimes you just know that somebody is meant to be in your tribe and you're meant to be in their tribe, right? In fact, it's
1: funny that you mentioned about the computer because, well, and I'm going to show my age a little bit here. There was no such thing for the most part as, you know, any type of computers like that, everything uh, back when I was in high school. Um, I didn't do anything with computers until my junior year in college. And we used a timeshare with the University of Minnesota via uh, 1200. It was either 800 or 1200 baud teletype okay. um, coupler and uh, with with tape. If you didn't have the, the tape with all the little punch holes in it, and you could only use it one time because, uh, if you, if you try to use it more than that, uh, all your instructions were incorrect. This was with uh, basic. I
0: remember all that.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, uh, that was my very first, uh, the computer thing, but that even got me hooked into what I ended up doing with regard to, you know, computers later on in life.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I, I, uh, I can remember working on the first uh, Radio Shack TR TR eighty. I think it was even before TR80, IBM. Right? Yeah, before mm-hmm. they even. I remember working on them, and then um, Timex had the Sinclair. You remember the Sinclair? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you had the evolution of the first um, the IBM ATs and the XTs, and then mm-hmm. all of a sudden Commodore got into, which was a Canadian company. Most people don't realize mm-hmm. the Commodore six sixty four, and then the Commodore one twenty eight, and right. I got into gaming, I got into ripping them apart and working on them electronics wise. And that's how I ended up, you know, having a mentor tell me you should get into electronics, right? You gotcha. should get into the engineering side of it. You're very analytical. And anyway, long story short, we've got a lot of commonalities. Um, right. Like you said, you realize your limitation of sports mm-hmm. and you and you got into doing other things. You can right. sit in a lot of what do most people do? They wallow in self-pity. Mm-hmm. And and they you just so you, you I see an evolution of the fact that you always wanted to strive to find your niche, your place in this world right. and, and you were and you were successful at it from going through college and you know doing the EDP to um, even having plagiarism on a paper in six months like, that's <laughs> ridiculous. We won't even yeah, get into that. That that's was
1: absolutely nuts. ridiculous.
0: right um, Your uncle being in law enforcement, that's cool right Giving you mm-hmm. it, all it takes is one person to create yep. a spark within our our, our mindset and then mm-hmm. it to connect to our heart and soul and that yep. so i really appreciate that you know and not wanting to give up private yeah. security 12 hour shifts to going to applying to nine, you know where they're doing nine testing 10,000 people 25 positions and you didn't check enough boxes like it's just i hope the listeners are really resonating with this because i certainly am i really appreciate the fact of your stick-to-itiveness and your want to never quit and that's my whole message give a heck about yourself and through that process of giving a heck you're going to touch a lot of other people's lives and help them elevate to a point where you are now which we're going to get into right away here um yeah, I'm fascinated by you and, and your your life and always wanting to fix you so that you could serve others better, right? Mm-hmm. Which is good. And you're constantly right. evolving. I mean, even to now and in, in this year of 2021, you know, and getting to know you, I can imagine how much more people you're gonna touch, even though for the listeners, you are retired from the police, but you're not retired from life. No. And, and never remember never ever think that when you retire. That's why statistically people that retire, they they pass away within years of retirement because they lose their drive to want to learn our mm-hmm. brains. And the listeners know this because I've talked about this quite often in my vlogs. our brain is designed to constantly have input. Right. And, and, and if it does not get input and you, you're living, your brain's living on that hamster wheel, along with your physical body, you slowly die. Right. You slowly, Absolutely. you become more susceptible to disease, to illness, mm-hmm. to just everything, and you become, you're more susceptible to anxiety, depression, right, because not everybody understands the difference between the two either. Some people oh, are absolutely. living in the past, they're depressed, other people are living in the future and they have anxiety, right? It's a pretty simple right. concept, but I really appreciate the fact that you never gave up And you went and kicked ass and got into that small horse in Wyoming and yeah, look at you. Look at you go. I like, I love your (laughs) origin, right? It's taken up a big part of the show so far, but that doesn't matter because it's you. Right. People need to know you because the rest of the story doesn't matter if they don't know where you came from and the struggles and the trials and the tribulations and, and adults proven to you that they're unreasonable. And what I mean by that is, is you being suspended completely unreasonable that's not realistic as to why people make mistakes right I I did a paper one time when I was in college for my electronics engineering and I was at the top of our class for for English and technical writing because I, I was fascinated by the written word already back then in my 20s and I was already I got married in between going to college right so mm-hmm. I actually still remember the instructor I, I handed in something and he says well what's this You reference this, but it's not in, you know, your bibliography at the end. It's not, you're not referencing it. I said, oh, you know what? I was just so tired. You know, kid was up last night because I got together with somebody that had a kid already. And we got married. And I said, she wasn't doing well. I was up late working on this other project for this class and doing this Mm -hmm. and that. I'm sorry. It was a total oversight. You know what he said, Dwight? He said, it happens. Mm -hmm. Just fix it next time. I'm dinging you a couple marks because you didn't do it, but I know you didn't do it intentionally. So he mm-hmm. dealt with it the right way.
1: Yeah, right? I wasn't even given. And I still got it.
0: And I still got a ninety-four uh-huh. on the paper. And then I was asked. To, there was a bunch of us who asked to present our papers in front of the class. And why did he do that? He wanted us to help us with our speaking abilities yeah. to be able to not just put on paper relay, but to be able to vocally relay. And he was one of the most, I, I, I wish I could remember his name, the professor, but he was he was very instrumental in me getting to a point where I realized how much I liked the word, the English language and how it can be participated. Mm-hmm. But then he also gave me that that inner spark to want to be able right. to, you know, verbally present that as well so absolutely that's awesome so we're going to continue on here so the next thing i'd like to talk to you about is your nlp right so can you explain to listeners exactly what nlp or neuro-linguistic programming is and what led you to do nlp for yourself like this more specifics you did touch on it a bit but i'd like to know more
1: okay to um to kind of preface into that and it, it might um um, it might go back just a little bit, sure. but as, as a, a police officer, um, I found that the one thing, if you're doing it right, you're, you're actually coaching people and training them. Even if you're giving out a traffic citation, you're explaining what they did wrong, You know that they're still a good person to be safe in the future, and uh, you, know, you want them to, to, to be around the next day. And uh, you don't make it, uh, you know, a, a nasty thing. Uh, people are scared enough for the most part. Uh, it's just a response we have. If you see blue lights in your back or red lights, depending on where you live, in your rear view mirror. And uh, I'm still the same way. And I did it for 32 years, you know. And uh, I don't freak out as much as others do. But, uh, uh, but uh, you know, it, it, it can still happen. And, oh, is he coming after me? Let me look down at my speedometer. But, um, and the one thing, now I, I helped many people during my years. Um, like I said, 32 years, last 18 were in information technology uh, unit. But the one thing I remember to this day, and I tell people this because this will get into my coaching and NLP. Um, there was this, I worked in this one particular zone and we had 15 zones in our city. And I worked this one particular zone for about a year. And in this zone, there was this one girl that every officer who ever worked in that zone knew about. She was constantly, constantly running away. Um, I had never worked it before that particular uh, you know, call, uh, but I knew about it. You heard it go out all the time. And um, in, in Florida, where I was uh, at the time, this was not in Minnesota, or in Wyoming, rather, I did go to a... Um, um, department, a much larger department in South Florida, just west of Fort Lauderdale. And, um, and this, this girl would run away. I had no idea why, uh, but I knew what we had in Florida was what we call juvenile pickup orders. So basically, if a kid runs away, they're under the age of 18, mom or dad call it in that they've run away. Um, they automatically put it in, from a police report. They put it into... The NCIC, NCIC system, which is the National Crime Information Center computer, and uh, it's like running a warrant check. If somebody has a warrant, it'll pop up in that computer. It's the same thing with the juvenile um, pickup order. And so she was in the system almost constantly. Um, and you know, dispatchers had her information all the time. It just made it easier to put her in. And, um, and what ended up happening was I knew there was a juvenile pickup order on her. When I happened to take a break at a McDonald's, it was a Friday night. I knew I was going to be busy. So I had my normal 10 minute break or so. And I said, let me grab a hamburger now. Cause I won't get a chance later. I saw her there with some other kids. She was probably 14, 15 at the time. I don't recall exactly, but 14 or 15. And, um, and, and I knew there was a juvenile pickup order on her and I could have just gone up and said, Hey, and I don't even remember her name, but I'll just call her Mary. Hey, Mary, you know, you, you ran away again. I've got a juvenile pickup order. I hate to do this, but I you know have to take you in. I didn't do that in this situation. Something told me that's not the way to handle this because she's only going to do it again. There's some underlying problem. I have to figure out what it is. So I, I pulled her over to the side. I said, can I talk to you for a moment? She said, okay. I think she was apprehensive, figuring she was going to be in handcuffs. And um, I said, so what's going on? I kind of, in a quick couple of minutes, try to figure out why she was running away. She Basically, she told me what every kid does. Mom doesn't listen to me. Um, there was no dad in the household. I think mom worked a couple of jobs. Mom never listens to me. And of course, that's the woe of every teenager, that parents just don't listen to them and this type of thing. But most teenagers don't run away from home all the time. So I knew there was something else going on. And so I talked a little bit more with her and I had to get off a break, but I said, listen, I'm not going to pick you up. Are you staying someplace tonight? Are you thinking about going home? She said, no. I said, okay. Are you staying someplace where you could be safe? She said, yes, I'm with so-and-so. And And I knew of them. I knew that they had good family in the city. And so I said, okay, please promise me. Now you owe me, because I'm not taking you in. Promise me that you'll stay with them and stay safe and that you'll go back home Sunday afternoon. Can you do that for me? She said, yes. I didn't know if she was lying to me or not, but I trusted her. I then, I knew where the house was. Um, I ended up calling out on a call, a self-initiated call at that house. And I talked to mom and I said, listen, I know that you've reported Mary as missing. And I just saw her. She's okay. And I explained the whole situation, what we had just talked about. And I said, can you give me any insight on what's going on? She basically gave me insight that she was working multiple jobs just to keep things on and that she was usually exhausted. And whenever uh, Mary would not do something or do something as kids will do, she would jump down her throat. And uh, I I just knew that wasn't right. And uh, I'm not saying that I probably ever didn't with my uh, daughter, but uh, you know, I just knew that wasn't right. And it was obviously, what was causing her, since she said, mom doesn't listen to me, I knew that she was cutting her off and just jumping down her throat. So I said, what I'd like to do is have you, and I suggested a bunch of things. Again, that's what a good coach will do, suggest things because people have the answers. They know the answers. They just are either afraid to do it or something along those lines. And I said, I really think you folks need some help that I can't give you, whether it be a priest, A a school psychologist, school counselor, somebody—you really do need to talk this out. Now she's going to come home on Sunday afternoon. Um, You know, please don't yell at her for being gone. She's safe. I know she's safe. Uh, If you feel like talking to her, try to keep it positive. Uh, Try to explain that you know we need to straighten this out and go on from there. Um. It turns out that even though I was in that zone for another six months or so, I didn't hear that call again. Now, obviously, I wasn't on every day of the week, but I never heard a call again. And it, you know, in back of my mind, it puzzled me when I thought about it when I drove in the area of their house. But uh, I didn't even give it a second thought. Must have been about ten years later. I used to work special details at an arena. Well, there are different places in town where police officers work off duty uh, for the business, uh, security or whatever. We had a large arena in our city. And I was working in a public area and this woman walked up to me and said, hi, officer Ferguson. I said, yes. She goes, do you remember me? And I said, no, I'm sorry. I don't. And, um, and she told me her name, and it didn't really click at the time. And she said, you don't remember me at all, do you? And I said, please, just tell me. And she explained that she was that girl that I didn't pick up. And uh, I, I, I well up every time I tell the story, but uh, she was that girl that I didn't pick up. It affected her so much so she and her mom got along well after that. They did get some professional help. They stopped being adversaries and became family again. And she was married. She had a child of her own. She remembers what she went through. And she said she is a professional now. She went to college, became a registered nurse, and she's doing well for herself. She is married, as I mentioned, and she would never want on her daughter What she lived through. And it was because, I'm sorry, it was because I didn't pick her up that day. That's when I realized that no matter what I did in my 32 years as a cop, this was why I did it.
0: Wow, that's amazing.
1: And so, um, to answer your question from a few minutes ago, what I ended up doing when I got out, uh, when I when I left the department, is and again uh, I mentioned I don't want to retire. Uh, I'll keep on doing whatever I'm doing, health wise uh, or you know health promoting, um, till I can't just do it anymore. And um, but I I don't play golf very well. I don't watch soap operas, so I have to do something. I'm a type A personality. My wife says I'm too analytical. I probably am, especially with uh, having been a law enforcement officer for as long as I have been and um, um, getting to the drilling down into things like yourself, finding out why something works or doesn't work and going from there, And which is what I did even with that family. Why isn't this working? And so with that, um, I, I decided to start. My company, I had part-time companies, you know, developing websites and things like this while I was a law enforcement officer, something I could do on the side. Every cop, every firefighter has a part-time side gig. Uh, they just do. It's, it's part of the culture. And um, not not for any other reason that sometimes they just don't get paid enough. So they want to make a little extra on the side. And I did that above and beyond working the special details. And um so I, I decided the one thing I knew, especially after being in the information technology unit, starting it, working with dispatch, uh, working with uh, um, uh, you know, other different units and everything. Um, and as I mentioned to you in our, our pre-conference, um, setting up the voice over IP system for the police department. And it didn't cost me anything to get certified with different providers Uh, We talked about Vonage, for example. There's other ones. um, And I just won't mention all their names, but I got certified with them. And essentially, I became a uh, reseller for their services. Uh, I could use anybody I wanted to. So I was a telecommunications consultant. And I could uh, offer them anything I wanted to, uh, anything that I was uh, certified uh, and partnered with to be able to, to sell them. And, um, and that was going well until the pandemic, I lost 50% of my clients, actually more like 62% of my clients went out of business. Um, I lost virtually all of my prospects, either they went out of business or they decided that they, uh, didn't want to make any changes because they may not be in business, uh, you know, much longer, whatever the case might be. They were actually cutting back or they weren't in an office anymore. So they didn't need a phone system there, this type of thing. And I got to thinking about it and I said, you know, uh, this can't depress me. I I, got to do something. And as I mentioned to my wife is, is a coach. She's a school teacher, but she is a coach. She has been, she, as well as I have been coaching people in another profession for many years being a mentor, I guess you could talk about it. You know, I was a big brother um, type of thing in in the police department, where they combined kids that didn't have fathers with police officers, and we used to meet several times a week. So I did that also as a police officer, and um, it wasn't as satisfying as that one girl, but you know, this this um, was something I also did to help people, and so when I didn't have as many clients and and I didn't see anything happening soon with regard to the economy. It was getting worse. I talked to my wife about it and she being a coach said, listen, what did you do for 32 years as an officer? And I said, well, I helped people. She goes, exactly. What do I do? I help people. She goes, why don't you consider getting certified as a coach like I did? And she was just a um, certified life coach at the time. Uh, She was going through her master life coaching uh, courses at the time as well. We were doing this all online virtually because everybody had now switched to doing things virtually as compared to in person, which actually saved us a bunch of money because otherwise you'd have to go someplace, spend a weekend, whatever the case might be. And um, I I thought long and hard about it. And I said, yeah, that's what I need to do. So I got certified as a life coach. I took the next uh, thing and certified before my wife, actually, as a master life coach. Of course, I had eight hours a day that she didn't have because I was retired. So I was able to do that. And during that time, it turns out that the instructor, the, the owner of the certification, uh, process who had actually been trained by one of the originators of NLP, Neuro, Neuro Linguistic Programming. Um, he's also a certified clinical hypnotherapist. He's a master NLP trainer and a master NLP practitioner. And um, he. I, I, I started researching, well, where do I go from here? He's involved in hypnotherapy and NLP. Let me check out this NLP thing. And, um, and he had, at that time, the three courses that he bundled together, practitioner, master practitioner, and trainer. So I paid for them all up front. And then for the next nine months, I did nothing but train, passed all the exams and everything else. And some of them were really tough. One of them required at least a, uh, um, a four-page case study, mine actually turned to be 16 pages. And uh, yeah, because I can't, he gave minimums, but I can't see how you could do the minimums. Uh, You just no way if you were doing it right. In fact, for my NLP trainer, final exam, uh, there were multiple choice questions and everything on all of them and essays on all of them. But I had to give a video presentation as if I was training someone. I uh, had a you know, uh, upload it to his, his server. But he said it has to be at least 15 minutes and no more than an hour. Well, he wanted several NLP techniques and he wanted, um, uh, and several to me is two, but I gave him three. And he wanted at least four or five other things. The only way you could do it in 15 minutes is basically give a, Uh, I mean, you would have to have about two minutes for each just to give a definition of them. You're not teaching in that point. My final exam video was 52 minutes long. And I probably could have gone a little bit longer, but I knew I was running out of time. And um, needless to say, I don't know what my final was. He doesn't give. He just says whether you passed or failed. And I feel I did really good. In fact, I still have it. I got rid of the first part that said this is my exam or whatever. And and I, I I have the 47 minutes of it that I can actually use as a as a video that for people who are thinking about getting into it, for example. The testimonial. So, your own testimonial. Yeah, it is for the most part. <clears throat> and deep. so where I hit those things which are very important to it. And so basically that, that's how I got into NLP because of having that information and wanting to help people, not only as a practitioner, but I'm more towards a trainer. I did a lot of that in the police department helping. I was a field training officer at one point. I had to help um, all as we got new technology. I had to train all the officers. and We had just under 200 officers on any new databases, any new equipment. Um, that was technological in whatever manner, whether it be a new radio or whatever, had to do the training on it. So I know that I can reach more people in the training than a one-on-one as a practitioner. And I want to help people. I want to pay forward all the good things that I've had in life. And that's so I love that. that's why I became a trainer.
0: That's awesome, though.
1: I didn't You're want a great to storyteller,
0: too, by the way.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you.
0: Yeah, you're really good at delivering. That's
1: probably from being a cop.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. We're all a culmination of the Mm. things that we learn in life through our different steps. And as we continue to go those steps, continue to, if we choose, that is, to evolve. And you obviously have a... I just, there's so many things I jotted down. It's just amazing. I appreciate the clarity and, and I don't mind the fact that you backed up to get to that point of how you got involved with NLP and how your wife encouraged you. That's amazing. Um, What I'd like to ask you have earned numerous awards and certifications and received many accolades throughout your career. Can you tell me one that means the most to you and why?
1: Oh, Okay. That's a real good question. You warned me about this and I never even thought about this.
0: That's okay. So yeah, just um, you, probably what, what was the number one thing that really touched you throughout your whole career? It doesn't matter if it's even up to, to now.
1: The, I don't think I can single it out to just one. There's, there's um, three in three different parts of my life. Uh, all the volunteer hours I gave, if you go over, I believe it's 4,000 lifetime hours of volunteer. Ism, um, that's how you get the presidential call to service award. Um, you can only get one of those, all the, uh, I mentioned numerous gold levels. You can get different gold levels by doing over, uh, I believe it's 500 hours for any given organization. And I have like three of those, uh, which went towards my, my presidential call to action one. So as far as, and I don't volunteer much now um, because I'm trying to really, you know, build up my business as I'm doing now. But I, I, that meant a lot to me when I got that because of the fact that I was volunteering and I was helping people. That's why you volunteer. So at that point, I think that was big back when I was an insurance person and had my own insurance agency that I did for eight years before getting into law enforcement. Um, I did receive Uh, And you might be aware of this. Um, There's an organization, I think it's worldwide, called Life Underwriting Training Council. And I did receive my LUTCF, which is designation, which is Life Underwriting Training Council Fellow. And so uh, I not only trained other insurance agents in life insurance and disability, the courses that LUTC did give, and that was through the American College of Financial Services, I believe it's called. And so so at that point in my life, that was really important to me, not just because I put it on my business card. It's kind of like being a CLU or, you know, or a CFA or something like that. Yeah. I did it because um, it meant something to me. It means that I was able to help other people again. I didn't care that I had it on there because now I knew more about it. I was able to not only train my... Um, train other people when I was a trainer for LUTC, but I was able to explain things better to my clients. I didn't see myself selling them something. I saw myself training them why they might need something, whether it was for me or someone else. And then now probably my, my, my biggest thing. Um, and it's, it's a dual thing, the trainer, NLP trainer and, master practitioner, as far as I'm concerned, they go hand in hand. Um, I forgot who said it, but uh, I think it was Albert Einstein that said, if you can't explain what you do or a a complicated thing to a six-year-old, then you don't know enough about it yourself. And so that's real important to me that to really be able to help as a practitioner or to train other people I have to really know what I'm doing. And so in this part of my life, I think that's the big thing. Other than that, the only other lifetime achievement, as far as I'm concerned, is having been with my wife for the last 36 years. She has been my prize. Um, I definitely don't deserve her, but... Uh, she she has been the person for me that has not only with regard to how she helped me make this decision, but you know, oh yeah, we've been through everything that every couple goes through. But um, you know, as far as my life from as an adult for the most part, at least the last thirty six years, and. Um, I may not sound like it and I'm not sure if this is just audio or video for your listeners. It'll be both. It'll be both. Okay. Um, uh, In two and a half months, I'm going to be turned 70 years old.
0: Yeah. And you know, life doesn't stop.
1: No, it doesn't.
0: Right, And and our society needs to value the fact of people in their 60s, 70s and 80s as much as they value somebody that's in their forties, their Mm fifties, we never stop being able to serve others. And you've proven that, like, I love the answer. You took it from me wanting one thing to three, but it's at different Mm -hmm. stages of your life. And it it just really, it was very touching to actually listen to you talk about that. Um, And, you know, your number one achievement, your, your prize of your wife and, you know, she was your anchor. I can I can hear it. And when you've brought her up numerous times throughout our conversation, she's been a big influence on you. And obviously, you've probably been an influence on her. I'd have to talk to her. Um, hopefully someday I will, as we talked about prior. But you know, that's that's amazing. Everything that I hear from you, from the moment we've started this till now, has been about growing your six inches so that you can continually serve others. And it's just, it yeah. Listeners, you need to check out, um, certainly check out Jan. Um, we're going to end up having to have Jan on again, maybe six months from now, because you'll be a little bit farther into your current, um, you know, your current avenue of where you're going with your coaching your NLP your master, master practitioner. And I'm excited to learn more about you. But at this point, Jan, um, if you have to give our listeners one last closing message, What would you tell them in regards to giving a heck and never giving up?
1: All I can really say, I think you covered it perfectly. Um, You just can't do it. Um, I'll I'll have enough time to rest when they put me in that pine box. Um, Until then, I'm gonna keep on giving, I'm gonna keep on living. And and yeah, you have to give a heck. You just, you, you can't give up for any reason. Uh, as a law enforcement officer, I can never understand when I go on a suicide call, how anything could be bad enough to not want to live. There's just no, I can't fathom it. Uh, life is a great thing. Um, we learn even when we are down, uh, we learn valuable lessons. If we look for the lessons, you can't just roll over and say, oh, well, it's life. No, you have to take um, I think what perfect thing is when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade. And so, um, you got to give a heck. You just got to keep on going.
0: Yeah. I like that. I always tell people you said with you added with until you're in a pine box, I tell people I'm going to continue to learn and, and expand and always want to serve others until my last breath is gone. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. what people don't realize is the best leaders in the world. Are the ones that don't label themselves as a leader they label themselves as a servant serving mm-hmm. others and doing always the right things it doesn't mean you're perfect it doesn't mean we're gonna you know not still even in your you know coming up on 70 or me in my 50s that we're not going to continually you know have a mistake but the biggest thing is is what do you do with that mistake you evolve it mm-hmm. into a life lesson, which you help drive you forward. You learn from the mistake, like I said, life lesson. Then you create more wisdom. Obviously, that's coming up on your set at seventy. You have more wisdom than I would in certain areas, but mm-hmm. at my age, I have wisdom in areas that you wouldn't. So that's why Absolutely. associations are so important on the journey of in not giving up and wanting to always give a heck. Mm-hmm. is constantly evolving our associations and our connections, which I am proud to say we have done that today. I have Absolutely. one more association, one more friend person I can call a friend that can continually help me level up my six inches and my knowledge and my wisdom and my years can help possibly you as well. Absolutely. and it's exciting. It's Absolutely. very exciting. I've really it enjoyed really I've really enjoyed our conversation. So our time is almost up I want to respect our listeners and your time. However, before we end, can you please tell the listeners, what's the best way to reach you, Jan?
1: Best way to reach me? I have a, um, a personal site above my 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 regular uh, business sites, um, and that is, uh, of course, the HTTPS in front of it, but it's Jan F, that's JanF360.com, JanF360.com. It has links to every way to get in contact with me, every one of my websites, all of my social media, all of it is in one location.
0: Okay. I'll make sure that's um, in the show notes when the show goes live and listeners know how to reach that. For the new listeners, just go to giveaheck.com and you can click on my podcast portal button and it'll take you in. You'll be able to see Jan's picture. The show will be that when it's live and you'll be able to click on and read the basic show notes, which will include links on uh, of the JanF360.com and anything else that uh, um, in regards to the social media connections, as Jan mentioned, you can find there. So thanks so much for being on. Give a heck, Jan. I appreciate your time and sharing some of your experiences so that others, too, can learn. It is never too late to give a heck. Thank you for taking time out of your day and listening to Give a Heck. If you find value, I'd appreciate you sharing with your friends and family so they too can learn how to live life on purpose, not by accident. So you do not miss the next episode. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and please also post a review. I look forward to reading your comments. This has been Dwight Heck. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or today's show notes, please check out my website giveaheck.com and until next time together let us all strive to give a heck